Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're currently walking verse by verse through the book of 1 John. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Well, since January, we have been walking verse by verse together as a faith family through the New Testament letter of 1 John. But in two weeks, we will finish. Next weekend, we bring 1 John to a close. So to kind of kick off this morning, where then are we headed next? What's coming after 1 John? Well, I came across a study not too long ago that is one of the oldest research projects ever done. It was a 75-year study conducted by Harvard University studying adult development. It actually started in 1939. In 1939, Harvard began this study. They selected 724 men. 456 of them were from inner city, urban Boston. The other 268 were graduates of Harvard University. And for 75 years, they studied these 724 individuals. And the, the, the director of the study now is a man named Robert Waldinger with Harvard, Harvard University. And I want you to look at this quote. Listen to what he said. The clearest message we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Period. Not how much was in your 401k. Not how many conferences you spoke at or keynoted. Not how many blog posts you wrote or how many followers you had or how many tech companies you worked for or how much power you wielded there or how much you vested at each. No, the biggest predictor of your happiness and fulfillment overall in life is basically love. Well, what it took Harvard University 75 years and millions of dollars in research to conclude, Jesus actually told us an answer to one question. Somebody asked Jesus one day, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it's real simple. Love God and love other people. So here's a question I want to ask you as we think about where we're going in two weeks. Do the relationships in your life cause you to love life? Do the relationships in your life cause you to love life? So September 10th, we are launching into a five-week study called simply Love Life. God's perspective on marriage, dating, and singleness. 
We're going to take five weekends and we're going to look at what God's word has to say about these issues. So don't miss that five-week series. And when you came in today, in your seat was an invite card that looks like this. Every one of us knows somebody, either at our job, in our school, in our neighborhood, that is struggling in an area of relationships, and this is an opportunity for you to invite them. Now, we kick off the series the same weekend we kick off the new service schedule. So the new service times are on the back, but I want to encourage you to invite somebody to join us on Sunday, September the 10th. If you're looking forward to jumping into this series, say amen. All right, well, we got to finish 1 John first. So if you got your Bible, open it to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're, we're closing this letter out with these last few verses. Last weekend, we looked at verse 13. This weekend, we're going to look at verses 14 through 17. And we said, John is closing this letter by writing to us about five things that every believer should know for sure. Last weekend, we looked at this subject. We said that we can know for sure that we have eternal life. If you or someone you know is struggling with security in their relationship with the Lord, I encourage you to go online to last week's talk and watch what John teaches us out of his word about the certainty that we can have in our relationship with God. But here's the second subject that John addresses that we're going to unpack this morning. Here it is. We know that God answers prayer. Say that out loud with me. We know that God answers prayer. We've seen God answer prayers just in the last week here at Hope. God answers prayer. How many of you believe that statement? Let me see your hand. All right. Now we all raised our hand. Do you live like you believe that statement. Here's what I mean by that. We know we have to have food to live. So guess what we're going to do today? <laughs> we're going to make a priority out of eating. We're not going to get to the end of the day and go, you know what, I forgot to eat today. We know we have to have money to live in this country. So you're going to go to work tomorrow, right? We're not going to go, you know what? I totally forgot I was supposed to go to work today. <laughs> we make a priority in our schedule out of things that we really know. We know that God answers prayer. Does the way that we live our lives reflect that? Well, John is addressing this idea that as believers, we should know that God answers Prayer, and it's interesting because prayer, prayer is one of the most puzzling aspects of the Christian walk. I mean, think about it. It's so simple, the smallest child can pray. I mean, we've got hundreds of kids that are going to be over in the other building this weekend, and we're going to do a lot of things with them, pouring the gospel into their lives, teaching them. But one of the things that they'll do with these boys and girls over there is they'll pray. These little boys and girls over there are going to pray. It's so simple, the smallest child can pray. And yet it's so complex, theologians can't agree on its impact. Prayer is really a puzzling part of the Christian journey. And John, as he writes about it here in this letter... He adds to the certainty, but he also adds to the complexity and the mystery. So, so let's read it together. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, look what he says. 
This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Amen? Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, before you get lost in the complexity of the second half of this passage, don't miss the emphasis of what John is really right. Some people get so lost in the complexity of these verses that John was simply giving an example of what he was talking about that they miss the real principle that John's laying down. And here's the principle John's laying down. We know God answers our prayer. I was reading this week, and I came across this quote by R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey is a great writer on prayer and the Spirit of God. Listen to what R.A. Torrey writes. He said, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. Wow. Did you hear that? All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Wow. So, John is teaching us that we know God answers our prayers. I want to give you three statements that John uses to kind of build this this platform for us this morning. Here's the first one. We should pray confidently. We should pray confidently. John opens this passage in verse 14 by saying, This is the confidence which we have before him. Here's what that means. You and I can confidently approach our Father. Sometimes in this thing of prayer, we kind of sheepishly go into the presence of God, almost like we don't really belong here, and we know we shouldn't really be saying this to you, but I'm going to come anyway because I'm supposed to pray. But John says, no, we can have confidence. The word confidence here is a Greek word that's made up of two words. It's a compound word. One of the words that makes up this word is the word all or every. The other is the act of speaking. And it's a word when it was used in the first century Greek language, it actually meant frankness or freedom of speech, meaning you can say anything and everything. John says when you and I approach the presence of God, that phrase, he said we can have confidence before him. That little phrase before him literally in the Greek text means face to face. Here's what that means. You and I can come into the very presence of God, face to face with God, and we can say anything and everything. Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't deserve this. 
It's not that because of who I am, I get to walk into the presence of God and God owes me his attention. No, it's all because of Jesus. You see, God is holy. And because of his holiness, you and I should never have access to his presence. But because Jesus died and rose again, you and I have been made holy in Christ. Now we have access to walk right into the Father and pour out everything in our heart right to God. That's what Jesus has given us. Think about it as parents. One of the greatest things you can do in your home is create an environment where any question or conversation is fair game. Moms and dads, your kids should know that they can come to you with anything and everything at any time. Your kids need to know that you're a safe refuge for them, that they can come to you. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is off limits. I didn't really grow up in that environment. You know, the last generation, we, we kind of grew up where, where there were things you just didn't talk about at home. You didn't talk about with your parents. You didn't have these. But, but man, I think the scripture teaches us as parents that, that we should have an environment where it's open and our kids can come and talk about anything. Here's what God's saying to us as our father. There's nothing out of bounds. There's nothing that you can't walk in with confidence as my child. And just, David said it this way, pour out your heart to me. We can approach him with confidence. Why is that? Listen to what it says in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, same word, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our God understands where we are living because he not only created human life, he lived it. And there's nothing that you or I will ever face that our God doesn't understand because he lived a human life. So we can go to him with our weaknesses. We can go to him with every situation and circumstance in our life. But not only can we approach our father with confidence, John says we can expect from our father with confidence. Did you hear what he said? If we ask... He hears us. The word hear is an interesting word. It means to, to pay attention by listening. But, but one Greek scholar, Spiro Zodiate, says it means even more than that. It means to hear and answer. Here's what that means. Anytime you go into the presence of God and you confidently approach his throne, and you pour out your heart. You have a conversation with him about any area, any weakness, any struggle, any need, any opportunity, any obstacle, any challenge. Anytime you go into the presence of God with confidence, John says you can know that the Father is giving you his full attention. And he's not only hearing you, he will answer you. Listen to the way John MacArthur said it. John MacArthur said we have access to all of God's resources through prayer. The sure promise of God is that when believers boldly 
and freely come to him with their requests, he will hear and answer. Now, we may not always like his answer. God promises that he hears us. God promises that he answers us. But there are three ways that God can answer us. Yes. No. Wait. Yes, that no and wait part. I I really... But how many parents or grandparents in the room? Let me see your hand. All right. Do you love your kids if the only answer is yes? I mean, when the three-year-old wants ice cream for breakfast. I mean, grandparents, we can get by with that every once in a while, right? But moms and dads, you, you can't do that all the time. That's not, you don't love them if you do that. You might say no, or you might say wait till later on. And, and in doing that, you're doing that because you love them. When the 12-year-old wants to drive the car, no is not an unloving response. But we don't like the no. <laughs> we don't like the wait. Let me ask you some questions. How many of you believe God is a loving God? Let me see your hand. All right. How many of you believe God is a wise God? Let me see your hand. How many of you believe God is a powerful God? Let me see your hand. All right. So complete agreement there this morning. Well, I want to tell you something. Not only is God a loving God, we just read in 1 John, God is love. Not only is God a wise God, you can read in Colossians that he is all wise. Not only is he a powerful God, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 says in him is all power. If that's true, let me give you some conclusions. Look at this. Since God is love, he desires only the best for us. Since God is all wise or has all wisdom, he knows what's best for us. Since God is all powerful, he can bring about what's best for us. If he desires what's best, he knows what's best, and he has the power to bring about what's best, and every time you and I approach him in prayer, the no or the wait has been filtered through this. Here's what that means. You can trust God's no, and you can trust God's wait. That it's right, and it's good, and it's best. May not feel like it. Just like at three, at three years old, Cheerios didn't feel like that was right when there was ice cream in the freezer. But it was best. It was best. But wait a minute, Pastor. I thought this verse said that if we ask him, we have whatever we ask. And, and I ask him, and I ask him with confidence. Well, you're not reading all the verse. 
He not only said we need to pray confidently, he said, secondly, we need to pray humbly. Did you hear it? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we have. William Barclay said it this way. We are so apt to think that prayer is asking God for what we want, whereas true prayer is asking God for what he wants. Prayer is not only talking to God even more, it's listening to him. In my study this week, I came across a book written by a, man named, a pastor named Ray Stedman, and, and he had discovered this letter that was a wedding day prayer that some lady had written, and he got his hands on it. And it describes this very attitude of prayer that thinks prayer is really not about getting God's will done on earth. We think prayer is about getting my will done in heaven. Here's the letter. Listen to this. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess, too, that I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how I've prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. And I've tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he is an antagonistic, and I understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if he were only a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us, and please don't spoil my wedding day. <laughs> so Ray... Ray wrote his own version of this prayer without all the platitudes. Listen to what he said. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want you, I want what, excuse me, I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. If you don't like this, then all I ask is that you bite your tongue and say or do nothing that will spoil my plans, but let me enjoy myself. Ouch. But unfortunately, a lot of times, that's, that's really how we pray. When you pray and ask God something that's clearly defined in his word, you don't need an answer. He's already given one. God's never going to speak in opposition to his word into your life. But we go to God and we justify like this letter and we, we make it sound so much better and we, we pile on the flowery language and we create reason. But, 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 but when we humbly pray, we follow the example of Jesus who said, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. God, would you heal me? 
But Lord, not my will. Your will be done. It's confident. It's not praying in doubt. I believe he can. I'm asking him to. But God may know something that I, he he may have a plan that's bigger than I can comprehend. God, give me a new job. But Lord, not my will. Your will be done. God, would you fix this problem? But God, not my will. But your will be done. Hey, when Jesus said, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, aren't you glad the Father didn't say yes? We'd all be headed straight to hell. There was a bigger purpose and plan in place. It's not a new teaching of John. He's repeated this throughout his writing. Let me give you a few verses. Just listen to these quickly. John 15, 7. John said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you... Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Now, here's the part of that we hear. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. (laughs) What we drop is the first. If you abide in me, if you are walking intimately with me. He said it again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. Look what he said. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. That's where we stop. We think it's a period, not a comma. Look what it says. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Every time this promise is made, it is always conditional, attached to the will of God. Jesus himself prayed. Often he would slip away to pray. Why did he do that? Look what it says in Luke 5, 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Here's what prayer does. Prayer is me confidently going into the presence of the Father and then humbly submitting myself to the will of the Father, allowing the Father to align my heart with His. Jesus spent so much time praying because Jesus wanted to constantly have His heart in line with the heart of the Father. And He desires what's best for me. He knows what's best for me. He has the power to accomplish what's best for me. I can trust him so I can come with confidence and with the best of my ability and understanding say, God, this is what I think I want, but God, you know what I need. So in confidence I ask, but in humility I submit to your authority. John Stott said it this way. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done and when we pray that way here's what John says we have what we ask God is going to accomplish his purpose and his will then John tells us a third thing so he gives us this we should pray confidently we have all the access to the father we should pray humbly but then John says let me give you an example of how to live this out 
we should pray for others. Isn't that interesting? John writing here about prayer teaches us that we have confidence, that we can have access, that we can tap into the untapped resources of God. But his first example is not about praying for yourself. It's about praying for other people. We all said, I believe God answers our prayers. And yet I think most of the time if we think about how we pray, we spend the bulk of our time praying for our needs, our wants, our decisions, our situations, our circumstances. And John says, hey, you can pray and God's going to hear you. Let me give you an example of how to do it. And he starts by saying we should pray for others. And before we get into the complexity of what he says, don't miss this principle. We should be praying for other people. Maybe what is withholding a movement of God in our church is a lack of our obedience to pray for one another. James Boyce said it this way. The privilege of prayer should not lead us into a preoccupation with our own affairs. As though prayer were a blank check drawn on the bank account of heaven, given to us so that heaven's resources can be spent purely on our needs or pleasure. Prayer implies responsibility. And part of that responsibility is intercession for others. So let me ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer out loud. I don't want you to raise your hand. Do you pray for others? Do you pray for others? Is that a consistent practice in your walk as a Christian to pray for other people. John here gets very specific in his example. And that's what this is. It's an example of how to live this out. And he talks about specifically praying for believers who are entangled in some sin. John begins in verse 16 by saying, If you see a brother committing a sin, if you see a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling in an area of their walk with God, here's what John says. Your first responsibility is to boldly approach the throne of God and ask for his grace that they might fall into conviction, repent, and surrender to obeying God. Here's what that means. Your first response is not to confront them. Now, maybe at some point on this journey, God will lead me to confront my brother or sister in Christ who's struggling in sin, but that's not the first response. The first response is to pray for them. Here's why. Number one, God may move in response to your prayers because it's his will for their lives that they be in obedience. God may move in response to your prayers in such a way that you never have to confront them at all. Let God do what only God can do. Give him the opportunity to move first. 
Secondly, God may want to deal with a beam in your own eye first. And it's when you get in his presence to pray that God will show you an area in your own life that needs to be dealt with first before you go deal with the speck in your brother's eye. So you don't go confront them first. You pray. You don't go tell somebody about it first. Even as a prayer request. Christian Gossip 101, right? Well, I don't want to gossip, but I'd love for you to pray for them. Let me tell you what they're doing. No, just go pray. Just take it into the presence of God and ask God to move. It's not to go get counsel about it. I need to talk to my small group leader. I need to talk to a pastor. So-and-so's calling sin. I don't know what to do. Let me tell you what to do. Go pray. Go pray. Now, there are other things we can do after we pray, but let's start by doing what God said to do, which is pray. And many times, God will move in the life of that believer and bring them to a point of brokenness, and there'll be a sweet restoration. And now maybe nobody but you and God ever have to know that you even prayed about it. But then John goes on, and he adds an exception to this. And he says, you pray for them as long as it's a sin not leading unto death. But there is a sin leading unto death, John said. And he said, you can pray about that, but God's already made his decision there. It's not going to change. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Well, quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because John, it wasn't the main point of his passage. But let me give you the possible meanings. There are four of them. Some people believe that this sin leading unto death is a particularly evil sin that God will not forgive. There are certain churches that teach different categories of sins, and if you commit this particular sin or this particular sin and you die and you hadn't asked forgiveness, then then you're unforgivable. Well, the problem with that is the rest of the New Testament John in his own letter said in first chapter 1 verse 9, if we ask, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't believe at all that's what it means. Number two is some people believe it's the sin of apostasy. People who were Christians, but they willfully chose to walk away from Christ and denounce him. He says there's no reason to pray for them. It's over for them. The problem with that is John just said, you can't lose it. I can't even separate myself from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. So I don't believe he's talking about apostasy. Number three, and this is where some evangelicals would hold that it's the unbeliever that John here is writing about a non-Christian who rejects the work of the Holy Spirit. Like in the New Testament, Jesus talked about the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and his conviction about the gospel, which ultimately means you don't receive Jesus and you spend eternity separated from God. It's the only thing that's unforgivable. Rejecting Jesus is unforgivable. We have all of this life to receive Christ, but if we die not having received Christ, there's no hope. But I don't believe that's what this is talking about. Because John here is writing to believers. And he opens this verse by saying, if you see a believer in sin. So he's talking about believers. Then what in the world is he talking about? Here's what I believe. you got to develop your own conviction. There's a lot of good and godly people on many sides of this issue. But here's what I believe. 
I believe he's talking about a believer who has gotten to the point where they are living in such open rebellion against God that God chooses to bring them home for the sake of the reputation of the gospel. There are examples of it in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. When they lied publicly, they lived this lie out in front of the church in the early days of the church, and God called them home. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible talks about that church that was taking the Lord's Supper, and and he said that there was so many of them that were taking it in an abusive way. He said, some of you are sick and some of you are asleep. God's taken some of them home because they're living an open lifestyle of sin and pretending to be okay with God, and God said, that's enough. When I was a kid, I grew up in Alabama. We had a big front yard. Our front yard was big enough that we could play baseball games and football games right in our front yard. We could set the whole thing up in the front yard. We'd have four or five boys on each team, and we'd just go at it, and we'd play. And I'm a competitive person, and I was even uh, before Christ. And as a kid, my competition got me in a whole lot of trouble. I've been kicked out of ball games. I've been double teed. I've been all of it. So there were moments of these competition events in our front yard where things got a little bit out of control, where we would begin to argue and have heated arguments about, he was out. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was. I saw it. And it would get to a point that, you know, you could kind of hear it all over the neighborhood. My dad would step out on the front porch and say, son, it's time to tone it down. You need to calm down. (laughs) Then there were other times when that competitive spirit spilled over to the point that it became like a boxing match and there were multiple times that me and a buddy of mine named Rusty Wheelis we got in fist fights in the front yard over whether or not somebody was out or whether or not that was a touchdown or whether or not that was a penalty and man I'd black his eye he'd bloody my nose and it'd reach a point where my dad would come out and he'd say son it's time for you to come inside meaning I had crossed the line with my dad where Just a reprimand and discipline wasn't enough. It's time for me. I had so shamed the reputation of our family. It's time for me to come in the house. Here's what I believe. I believe there are times in the life of a believer when we drift so far in a period of rebellion that our reputation is so damaging to the cause of Christ and the mission of the gospel that the most loving thing the father can do is say, son, it's time for you to come home. And John says, when it gets there, you can pray, but you say, well, how do I know if that's where they are? (laughs) We don't. And if they're breathing, there's still hope. So here's what we do. We pray. And we say, Father, not my will. Your will be done. So as believers, we can pray confidently. We can pray humbly and we should pray for others let's go to the Lord in prayer right now Father we bow before you in this moment and 
we ask that you would speak to us. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian and you are struggling in an area of obedience. Listen, I'm not talking about when I share this principle. I'm not talking about a Christian who struggles and repents and acknowledges to God and it's an ongoing, continuous struggle. I'm talking about a believer who has walked away in open rebellion to the principles of God, said, not your will, my way. I'm going to do it my way. Maybe you're struggling in an area and you just need to make a fresh surrender to Jesus. Listen, that's a good text to hear a word from the Lord and listen to the discipline of a loving father who's correcting you and wooing you. But I really want us this morning to practice what we've looked at. So in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of worship and we're going to open these altars up. And Christian, if you're here today and there is a brother or sister on your heart who is struggling, I want you to come get in this altar and I want you to pray for them. You say, can I just do that in my seat? Yeah, you can, but I think this morning is a way for us to make a bold statement before the Lord. If you know a brother or sister and they're struggling, I want you to just come get in this altar And I want us to kneel before our God. Something that you've seen in their life, their walk, their testimony, and you just want to pray for them. Maybe it's not even a Christian struggling in sin. Maybe it's a Christian that's just going through a difficult season and you just want to pray for them. These altars are going to be open. Just come and let's be a church today that just prays for people. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, listen, you don't have access to the presence of God apart from Jesus. You can't pray apart from Jesus and have confidence that God hears and answers. It's only in Jesus that we have that privilege. If you don't know Jesus today, listen, the gospel says that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for your sin. Jesus died and he rose again. So that you and I could be forgiven. If you don't know Jesus today, when we stand to sing in just a moment, we have pastors here at the front. You can come to one of them today and say, hey, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible. Last week, we had a lady come to church for the very first time in her life. Never been to church. And she gave her life to Christ last weekend. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've never been to church before. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. Just come. For others of you today, maybe you have something in your life you want one of our pastors to pray over you about. Something in your job, your health, your family. You just come. We'd be honored to pray over you during this time. But we're going to respond to the Holy Spirit. Believers, I expect there's many of you that need to come and get in one of these altars and pray for a brother or sister in Christ. And who knows what God may do this week? Who knows what God may do in their life? Who knows what revival may take place in a family or a home if we would simply obey the word of God and pray. God's shown it to you so that you can pray. God, this morning as we pray, we thank you that you hear us. We thank you that we can have confidence in you today. And we ask you, God, today to move Holy Spirit, have your way.
it's in the name of Jesus we pray.